0: I want to come to a more rigorous refutation of this claim of the causes no one can purposefully not act now consider however some economic proposition what is consumed now, Cannot be consumed again later. Without private property and production factors, there can be no prices, and without prices, cost accounting is impossible. impossible. If we increase the amount of money without increasing the quantity of non-money goods, Social wealth will not be higher, but only prices on rocket. What is consumed now not be consumed again later. Now, now, then be able to see again I right, do so
1: Jose Galison, you're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcatchers, and Odyssey as well. Uh, I want to give credit once again to Romero Synth, that is his YouTube page. You can go find that, uh, other that and more. Um, of, I don't know what you call that, uh, wave or something type stuff. I feel like such a boomer right now, but it's I know it's a certain genre of music. I know a lot of people out there probably upset me, but uh, he does he has a few Hoppa ones, there's a Kinsella one. And he has other stuff that's not even related to that. I highly suggest go checking it out. He gave me permission to use these for my intros, uh, even though we both don't agree or believe in IP. But, you know, just a polite agreement amongst, fr- amongst uh, you know, maybe not friends, I guess the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Anyway, go check it out for sure. Uh, today my guest is Toad. We're continuing our uh, live reading of Democracy, The God That Failed, that absolute banger, that you know necessity when it comes to the libertarian reading. Um. Do want to let you guys know how this works? Uh, if how this works now is I just changed it. Uh, these are now the live streams are behind the paywall, except for the four pony boys, and then I guess maybe every once in a great while I might have one that's another live stream that's public for whatever reason. But no more public live streams except for four pony boys for the most part. Uh, if you want to have access to the live streams, and then you can even watch them before they're released publicly. Uh, I do a, a live stream for my patrons, and about roughly a week or so later, I put it up public. If you don't have access to it in the meantime while it's not public, you want to be able to see the episodes early. And you go to Patreon.com. So there's no way to a twenty twenty. The lowest level is two bucks. I'll give you access to that. I have a five. I have a ten. I have a twenty. And also, you can just put up whatever you want to. There's no you don't have to do on the set amounts. But the twenty dollars level is my my sponsors, and my sponsors are Mikkel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. Uh, he's your guy if you're trying to get the hell out of the country. He does as a podcast and as a business. So if you just want to kind of check it out, check out the podcast. If you really want to do it, go hit him up. Go find his business. Uh, get on him. If you want to You know, look on getting passports to other places, setting up dual citizenship, just all sorts of stuff, anything like that pretty much. Uh, I also have Jeremy who has an Etsy store, etsy.com, slash shops, that's Raising Liberty. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Jeremy Rimes. got a lot of good Liberty merch there if you want to check that out. And Toad, who's my guest of Tower Power Hour, uh, which, by the way, uh, we just found out today we are scheduled to go, well, I guess we, will probably be two or three of us of the Tower Gang guys will be going on TimCast January 17th, provided Tim doesn't actually check out the show, and if that happens, we probably won't be going. So, you know, it is what it is. Let's hope he doesn't do it, doesn't look into it, but we've got a confirmed date either way. So that's that's uh, that's more far than we ever expected to go. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I said, go check that show out. Uh, it's on, it's sort of on YouTube, not really, but pretty much. Go check it out on Odyssey or Spotify. That's the place for that. Uh, and that's, uh, yeah, it's my co-host on that show, Toad. Uh, Tph underscore Toad is him on Twitter. If you want to follow him there, uh, yeah, definitely go check out the show. Though me and him are both on it, and you got Reed, Clint, Top, and uh, Fat Dave. It's uh, it's quite the show. If you're into offensive comedy, that's uh, done semi okay. Go check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Also, make sure to go check out Top Lobster. Toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout. Uh, you can get my merch. You can get Tower Power Hour merch. You can get a bunch of other different shows merch and stuff that's not show related. I uh, highly suggest go check that out. Toplobster.com. Uh, and that is enough. Let's
2: go and get Toad in here. What's up, man? So, everything you just said is like so two weeks ago, man. It's We rebranded. It's Tower Gang now. And I'm did I say, Tower, did I say
1: Tower, Tower Gang Toad now.
2: <laughs> did I say Tower Power Hour? Yeah. Oh, dude. All habits die hard. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It is what it is. Uh, by the way, it probably won't be me or Toad going for this one. Just so you guys know, uh, you know, it's looking like it'll probably be Clint and top, and if we can get a third in there, it'll probably be Fat Dave slash Cool, whatever you want to call him. Uh, so.
2: yeah, I'm just the most likely to get you nuked. So yeah, I don't think that's
1: it. But all right, man, you ready to get into some hoppa? Um, I'm gonna uh, knock out this
2: chapter. Yeah, let's finish it. We're in the middle of chapter four here.
1: Yeah, chapter four on monarchy, democracy, public opinion, and delegitimation.
2: Yeah, this is page 84, I believe, section five uh, is where we left off last time.
1: Yep, let's go ahead and get into it. Moreover, with free entry into and participation in government, the perversion of justice and protection, law and order, will proceed even faster. The notion of universal and immutable human rights, and in particular of property rights, essentially disappears and is replaced by that of law as government-made legislation and rights as government-given grants. Rather than just redistributing income and wealth from civil society onto government by means of taxation, deficit financing, and money inflation, both hereditary princes and democratic caretakers can also use their monopoly of jurisdiction for the redistribution of income and wealth within civil society. The incentives faced in this regard by princes and caretakers are distinctly different. However, I mean, at this point,
2: no, I mean, I think he's about to uh, start going into some of these examples about how they redistribute wealth, like amongst the population and not just, uh, you know, towards uh, like the ruling class. Although, you Know, I would still argue that what they're redistributing amongst the uh, public is uh, like a mere pittance, basically, compared to what they get out of it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think actually they're about to more get into
1: the idea of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, how essentially a democratic government degrades the concept of like natural rights or.
2: Or some yeah. sort of semblance of law and order. Uh, but Right. He mentioned that, yeah, in the first uh, yeah, paragraph of that section as well, which is a continuation of what he was talking about uh, on the last episode that we did, which feels like a while ago now. But yeah, he, of course, yeah, he was talking about how uh, as these governments grow in size or whatever, uh, they start making more and more laws that just get further and further away from enforcing actual property rights or anything that is – what you would consider to be morality, essentially. By the way, I just realized I'm looking a little blurry. I think I need to clean
1: off my lens and my webcam, so sorry. Anyone out there noticing it? Because it's really bothering me now that I am. I
2: thought you just were blurry, man.
1: Yeah. Uh, it is instinct- instructive to take another look at princely government. As regards redistribution, princes face two disincentives. The first is a logical one. Even though a prince ranks above everyone else, his rights to are private rights, albeit of a somewhat elevated kind. If a prince takes the property of one person and distributes it to another, he undermines a principle on which his own position and security vis-à-vis other princes rests. Second, from an economic point of view, all general income and wealth de- redistribution from the haves of something to the have-nots is counterproductive and reduces the overall value of the territory. This is not to say that princes abstain from redistributive pro- uh, policies entirely but their policies take, on, take a distinctly different form. On the one hand, they must appear in accordance with the idea of private property rights. On the other hand, they should increase future productivity and hence the country's present value. Accordingly, princes typically grant personal rather than group privileges. They award privileges to haves instead of have-nots, and they attend to so-called social problems by reallocating labor cultivation, uh, acculturation, and colonization policies rather than redistributing income wealth. Anyway. Yeah,
2: so he's uh, saying somewhat what he said before, uh, basically to the effect of that, like a monarchist is going to be more incentivized to keep the population being more productive, and the way that they do that is to not uh, trend or not redistribute as much wealth uh, within those people, and actually leave that wealth in the hands of the producers and the people who are actually like earning that wealth, essentially.
1: Yeah. I do like the way he frames this. He's kind of coming from the idea of uh, looking at it uh, from a private uh, property right perspective. And uh, we've talked about this at length earlier, that the uh, the monarchies or the princes or whatever you want to call them, uh, in a certain sort of way, they kind of operate within private property type things. Obviously, it's not perfect. It's it's not a just property, as we would say, per our theory uh, theories of uh, property, but- in a certain sense, they sort of operate. The way he said it is like it was almost like they're an elevated version of it. But they, to some extent, mm-hmm. sort of operate under the same policies, which we'll, I think we're about to get into even more in how democracy and the just the the premise of it in general degrades the concept. Uh, whereas in uh, you know a, a monarchy, the it, it's it's still basically private property to some extent, but just in a different different sense of the of the word, if that makes sense, uh, you know.
2: It's still uh, it's still yeah. the
1: idea that the king owns or owns this thing, as opposed to the people own it, and at least you can still kind of point to an individual. And to some extent, if he degrades the concept of property rights in a certain abstract form, he also degrades his uh, his con like his right um,
2: legitimacy of of property uh, claims or whatever. Right. So he mentions yeah that they're less it, the monarchist is like is less likely to be collectivizing the population and redistributing wealth based on, you know, some uh, like immutable characteristic or something like that.
1: Yep. And here he gets into it. In contrast, a democratic caretaker faces no logical obstacle to the redistribution of private property rather than involving himself with the preservation and involvement of capital values he will be concerned primarily with the protection and advancement of his own position against the competition of new government entrants. This type of caretaker's legitimacy does not rest on the legitimacy of private property. It rests on the legitimacy of social or public property. Thus, if he takes property from one person and gives it to another as a caretaker, he does not contradict his own ideological foundation. Rather, he affirms the supremacy of the different principle of social ownership, Consequently, under democratic conditions, private law, the law of property and contract underlying civil society disappears as an independent domain of law and is absorbed by an all-encompassing public government-made law. As the German socialist legal theorist Gustav Radbruch noted, from the perspective of a democratic caretaker, private law is to be regarded only as a provisional In constantly decreasing range of private initiative temporarily spared within the all comprehensive sphere of public law. Ultimately, all property is private or public property. Each estimated or established private property right is only provisionally valid and may be altered in accordance with the caretaker's unilateral determination of the requirements of quote unquote public safety and quote unquote social
2: security. Yeah. So, right. In the... uh more a democratic system, he's essentially saying that more and more of the property becomes sort of subsumed, I guess, confiscated by the government and falls into the domain of public property, confiscated property, essentially. So uh, yeah, they're eliminating uh, the existence of private property, uh, essentially, for the most part, even the stuff that you consider to be private property sort of isn't in a way, if you want to look at it that way, like you're income because, you know, so much of it is taxed and you are forced to adhere to laws that make no sense and things like that. I think that's yeah. what he's getting at. I mean,
1: the simple difference is in one of these situations, this is the king's property. In the other situation, this is everyone's property, but in the hmm. democratic sense to where no one really has any true ownership to where at right. least to some extent, and this is almost a bizarro version of what proper property rights or private property rights are supposed to look like is what you see in a monarchy
2: so yeah and i don't know if the quote is from this book or even from this section but i know Hoppe has a quote uh, where he says that democracy is a soft form of communism and it's for pretty much the reason that uh you just mentioned right there yep all right
1: if you want to take over let's go please
2: uh yeah where are we at second Second, and more specifically, because caretakers do not own the country's capital stock, the counterproductive effects of income and wealth redistribution are of little or no concern. However, the long-term repercussions of redistributive measures are unimportant to them, while their immediate and short-term effects are not. A caretaker is always under the pressure of political competition from others seeking to replace him. Given the rules of democratic government, of one man, one vote, and majority rule, a caretaker, whether to secure his present position or advance to another, must award or promise to award privileges to groups rather than particular, particular individuals, and given that there always exists more have-nots than haves of everything worth having, his redistribution will be egalitarian rather than elitist." Accordingly, as the result of democratic competition, the character structure of society will be progressively deformed. I mean, to put this simply, uh, in a monarchy, they're more likely to
1: uh, elevate people of substance. Um, and yeah, maybe they may not always get it perfectly right. It could be the king's buddy who has this company that he grants some sort of, um, I don't know, what did they used to grant? I forget. Uh, but anyways, he, he does some sort of legal action of some sort to grant him some sort of privileges. Uh, generally speaking, these mm. are going to be, you know, more sparse for one. Uh, it's also going to be on an individual level uh, as opposed to democracy being on a, co- uh, a larger level and also incentivizing it happening at all, um, you know, because I generally speaking, a king is probably going to be not looked on well as if he's going around kind of um, – What's the word I'm looking for uh, when you appoint your kids something? But like where he's appointing all his friends to positions. Son- nepotism. Yeah, nepotism. People aren't going to like that, that that feeling of nepotism, whereas it just happens rampantly in the government. And there's so many of these people that it's hard to keep track of because if you're like, oh, some random senator from Wyoming appointed his son to
2: this that, and this, no one really pays attention. But when you have a smaller
1: right. group, it's way easier to pay attention to.
2: Right. So there is but, like a lot of that nepotism going on in you know the U.S. government. And some yeah. of it is like more obvious where you have like the Bushes and the Clintons are kind of like in control of the whole American system of government for decades or something like that. And then you have like other things that people like don't really notice, like, oh, uh, like Gavin Newsom is Nancy Pelosi's nephew or something like that. Like, it's you know, kind of ridiculous. But yeah, yeah I mean, some of what he's saying here is that um, – in like the democratic system of government uh their incentives are such that they're going to want to be like giving more stuff to the have-nots basically because they know that they need like all these people to vote for them essentially Mm -hmm. so they're you know it's the shifting incentives so they're going to be doing more stuff like that whereas in the the monarchy that isn't really the case and as he puts puts it here they're um they're more elitist than egalitarian uh, in the monarchy where they're more so favoring like the their friends and family and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, whereas a king is going to have more of an incentive to want to elevate people who have a chance of increasing the value of his property, which is the country. Uh, those, and those are going right. to be typically why he elevates certain people. And don't get me wrong. That's kind of like corporate welfare in a sense, but uh, it's more selective corporate welfare. And so, I mean, it's right. – it's obviously it's not perfect uh, we're comparing systems but this is uh, appointing people based on some sort of perceived merit as in elevated positions or privileges is much preferable than to doing the exact opposite and promoting people based on uh, based on their shortcomings right. uh, or maybe not even shortcomings because some of these will be groups that will be like ethnic groups or something like that. But I mean, I guess in a certain sense, just shortcomings. Cause the, the point they will point to is how these are down downtrodden people or what have you. And I'm not even saying shortcomings in a bad way, like to cast Persians. There can be reasons for it, but yeah. point being is, uh, you know, it, and he'll get into this more. The idea is generally speaking economically, especially if you have a true free market, typically the people making more money, it's for a fucking reason. Like, yeah, there are going to be in, in today's society some people that yeah, maybe maybe um like the Amazon guy wouldn't be as big as he is if he Jeff hadn't got yeah, yeah, Jeff Bezos can think of the same. Wouldn't be as big of he, as he is if he hadn't gotten hooked up by government. But let's be right. real, he probably would still be
2: doing pretty decently. Right? Oh yeah, like with him with Elon Musk, I think we mentioned him before. Like it's they obviously got to a certain level that they got to of their own yeah. Uh, You know, like that uh, was—I don't know what the word I'm looking for is—of their own like volition, I guess. If you want to look at it like that, then at some point, yeah, they became big enough where it's like the like people will become big enough and or companies will become big enough. The government is like, well, we need to make sure that we like control this power here, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to like start kind of like working in tandem with them. It's that you know, um, uh, regulatory capture and stuff like that that Rothbard talks about in uh, progressive era stuff like that um the other thing i was going to say about this paragraph uh, before i forget like you could look at it um in a way uh like with the monarchy like if you're looking at how are these rulers incentivized to like maintain their power or stay in power with the monarchy it's more about keeping their family in power so it's more about like uh keeping the, you know, what they own right now, like keeping control of their property, making sure it stays in the family, handing it down to their heirs, whatever. Whereas in the uh, democratic form of government, it's like, well, how do you make sure that your people stay in power? It's by getting people to vote for you and your people essentially.
1: Yeah. Like essentially like to the nepotism point, like uh, in democracy, obviously we mentioned it's rife with nepotism, but they don't really have as much of a uh incentive not to like if there's an opportunity right. say some Ukrainian energy board they'd be like well I can get my kid this job because of this connection or what have you there's almost no incentive for them not to whereas in a monarchy yeah there's I'm sure to some extent there still will be nepotism there uh they they're probably more apt to, to you know give their cousin who has this company privileges as opposed to Jim Bob uh, but you know um je- but they're also going to be incentivized to not be as sloppy as with that because everyone has some family member that's probably a complete fuck up uh and in democracy that complete fuck up would probably get some sort of job controlling something he probably shouldn't be controlling or some sort of hookup, or whether it be a government job or some sort of you know uh you got hooked up with some you know foreign entity or you know kind of like the ukraine thing Mm. but generally speaking like in a in a uh in like a monarchy there's no reason or there is there's reason there you're not going to give the retard cousin the, the reins of, of any sort of power because like, yeah, I'm sure maybe you'll still help them out here and there, but you don't want them actually reducing the value of your property. You don't want to put them in a place where it's going to cost your country. If anything, Mm -hmm. you're looking for people who are going to do the opposite. And you know, there's some argument to be made with family. Like these are people you can trust, but so there's some benefit to that. But, uh, you know, point being is, uh, you know, you're going to get your idiot cousins elected or, or, you know, hooked up in democracy, whereas the idiot cousins, you know, are probably not going to get hooked up in a monarchy. <laughs> but, right.
2: But the and, cousins that have it together, probably. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there is, like, a lot of stuff to be said about, like, the, like the current um, – situation, like the US government, the way that it's currently structured, where like, yeah, it's not really a democracy, but they cast like the illusion that it is. So people behave like it is, they're told that it is, they think that it is. But then you, and you could argue like, well, this is like still sort of like the democracy that Hoppe is kind of talking about, where it kind of just gets like, perverted, basically, and it becomes this uh, thing where really, you just have, you still have like a dictatorship, but it's just like a dictatorship of the many, although that really is what democracy is if you think about it. Um, But yeah, so I mean, but you do have like situations where it's like you you can see obviously there are certain people in the US that are like they're not like allowed like the establishment does not allow these people. They do not want these people in power. They do not want Trump actually in power. They do not want even like Bernie Sanders to be like in the seat of president because you know they so there's still that going on like even though it has that like illusion of the democracy you have a very limited amount of choices and if you don't choose the correct person well basically fuck you like we're going to choose for you so there's a lot going on there
1: all right let's keep it moving we focus on this one paragraph quite a bit yes (laughs) i know that
2: was was an intense paragraph uh all right Uh, For one, regardless of the criteria on which it is based, all redistribution involves taking from an original owner and or producer the haver of something and giving to another non-owner and or non-producer the non-haver of this thing. The incentive to be an original owner or producer of the thing in question is reduced and the incentive to be a non-owner and non-producer is raised. Consequently, the number of havers and producers declines and that of non-havers and non-producers rises. And since it is presumably something good that is being redistributed, of which the haver producers have too much, and the relative number of bad or not-so-good people, and bad or not-so-good personal characteristics and habits... Wait. No. Yeah. Sorry. I just skipped a line there. Uh, That is being redistributed. Yeah. Of which the haver producers have too much, and the non-haver non-producers too little... This change implies quite literally that the relative number of bad or not so good people and bad or not so good personal characteristics and habits will continually rise and life in society will become increasingly less pleasant. Rather than colonization, cultivation, and acculturation, democracy will be will be uh, democracy will bring about social degeneration, corruption, and decay.
1: Right, let's not focus on this one too much, but to make yeah. it simple, essentially the idea there is. If you, especially in a democracy, the point being is they typically award uh, or they will elevate the have-nots as opposed to in a marquee, they're typically going to elevate the haves. Mm -hmm. And if you are a have-not, generally speaking, it's because you likely didn't make the right moves or – Do this or that or or you could even just been you know i mean don't get me wrong there are people that do well because they were born with a leg up of some sort whether it be you know some sort of inherited family familial wealth but generally speaking there's an economic reason why you aren't making that money so if Mm -hmm. people are awarding that uh you know awarding that that is incentivizing that behavior it just is there's no way around it you know so the idea and it also on the flip side if you take away money from someone who is producing, doing the right things, it de-incentivizes them to want to do that. And the people will always be like, well, that's stupid. Oh, these rich people, you think they're just going to want to make less? Like, no, but there is going to be a small subjective evaluation within their head. They're like, well, I don't need to work yeah. as hard because they're going to right. charge this much taxes over this rate or whatever. Because so what is even the point? You know, like just relax, mm-hmm. take it, take an extra week every year of
2: vacation yeah. or whatever. You yeah. Know? It, and as we said before, there's like subjective value at play there uh which we said in one of the previous chapters where there's like a certain threshold that needs to be overcome for like what like will it take for somebody to actually like work for it like they will like people will decide to not work uh to get less back in return than you know what it would take uh, for them yeah. to work you know what I'm saying so yeah, for
1: example if like uh, I have a job if if I was able to get welfare and I only got I don't know, 500 bucks less a month. Right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm making less, but it's like, I don't have to fucking do anything.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, right. So the point there, yeah. Uh, the government, uh, by taking from the producers and giving to the non-producers, they are incentivizing people to be non-productive and disincentivizing people from being productive. Which, obviously, if you take that to you know, its logical conclusion, you're going to wind up with no production at all. Yeah, and cause degeneration, like his last point. Right. All right, let's keep it going. Uh, moreover, free competition is not always good. That, that, is, that is a point I see a lot of people getting wrong on Twitter uh, recently. So uh, free competition in the production of goods is good, but free competition in the production of bads is not a free competition in the torturing and killing of innocents or a free competition in counterfeiting or swindling, for instance, is not good. It is worse than bad. It has already been explained why government as a compulsory membership organization endowed with the power of ultimate decision-making and taxation must be considered a bad, at least from a liberal viewpoint. It requires a second look to realize that democratic competition is indeed worse than bad.
1: I do like the way he frames this because essentially it points out in a certain sense, democratic government is essentially almost like a decentralized version of like, uh, I don't know, like monarchy or something. And Mm -hmm. so like we've already admitted before that monarchy is bad. It's just better than uh, democracy is kind of our stance. But in this sense, uh, with this, it's almost like an inversion of the market where, you know, with the Democratic, you have so many different people. They're all kind of somewhat acting. You know, essentially it creates a free competition of bads, is what the Democratic government creates more so of. And uh, mm-hmm. essentially this is why you create a, you know, it gets bad worse or, or it gets, yeah it gets worse quicker than it does for, for monarchy in a certain sense.
2: Yeah. You have people competing to be non productive or whatever, to get more of this welfare money, things like that. Or that paragraph, what really brought to my mind when I was uh, talking about the Twitter thing was uh, some of the arguments that like Dave Smith was getting into within the last like couple of weeks with the sex workers where they were trying to make the argument that it, I think it was like Kathy us dumb bitch she was uh she was saying uh like she made the point and i was like this is a totally ridiculous point just on its face and hoppa says so right here she's like well uh you know you have a free market in sex work and a free market is always a good it's like well no it's not good if it's a a market of degeneracy which is what dave was saying he's like would you want like your kid like doing sex work over something else like this is it it's not a good just because there is like a free market in it Although I would also argue that it's not even really a free market because there are so many perverse incentives going on. Like <laughs> what we live in right now, like nothing is really a free market mm. except for agorism. Hey Jose. Hell yeah. All
1: right. Let's keep it moving. Uh, in every society,
2: in every society, as long as mankind is what it is, people who covet another man's property will exist. Some people are more afflicted by the sentiment than others. But people usually learn not to act on such feelings or even feel ashamed for entertaining them. Generally, only a few individuals are are unable to successfully suppress their desire for others' property, and they are treated as criminals by their fellow men and and repressed by physical punishment. Under princely rule, only one single person, the prince, can possibly act on the desire for another man's property, and it is this which makes him a potential danger and a bad. Apart from the already noted logical and economic disincentives, however, a prince is further restrained in his redistributive desires by the circumstance that all members of society have learned to regard the taking and redistributing of another man's property as shameful and immoral, and accordingly watch a prince's every action with the utmost suspicion. In distinct contrast, by freeing up entry into government, everyone is permitted to openly express his desire for other men's property. What was formerly regarded as immoral and accordingly suppressed is now considered a legitimate sentiment. Everyone may openly covet everyone else's property as long as he appeals to democracy and everyone may act on his desire for another man's property, provided that he finds entrance into government. Hence under democracy, everyone becomes a threat. I don't even have any commentary. added to that because it's put perfectly. It's a great- uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love, yeah. Like this yeah. whole chapter is really meaty. Like every paragraph yeah. is making like, really good points here. But yeah, I mean, I mean, if there's something else to say, it would just be, I don't know, we would be rewording what he's already saying, like basically in the democracy, uh, well, in the monarchy, you basically only have one threat, like one person who is who can legitimately or legally confiscate others' property. And basically, it's way easier for everybody to realize, hey, this is bad. Like this person shouldn't be doing it. So they have to limit themselves in doing that. Whereas in the democracy, it becomes, hey, everybody's allowed to do this as long as they get into government. And not only that, like it's pushed as like this, like good, like you're a public servant, like you're a hero, you're doing this. So people, you know, everything gets fucked up. People are incentivized to do this. They're told that it's a good. And uh, all these people basically become legitimate or legal um, confiscators of property, essentially. So you have Basically, the entire public becomes a bad, whereas in the monarchy, it's just the monarchist. Yeah, because there's only one of them, it kind of limits his desires. So,
1: but all right, let's keep it moving. Uh,
2: yep. Yeah. Uh, Consequently, under democratic conditions, the popular, if immoral and antisocial, desire for other men's property is systematically strengthened. Every demand is legitimate if it is proclaimed publicly under the special protection of freedom of speech. Everything can be said and claimed and everything is up for grabs. Not even the seemingly most secure private property right is exempt from redistributive demands. Worse, subject to mass elections, those members of society with little or no moral inhibition against taking another man's property, habitual amoralists who are most talented in assembling majorities from a multitude of morally uninhibited and mutually incompatible popular demands, efficient demagogues will tend to gain entrance in and rise to the top of government. Hence, a bad situation becomes even worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's incentivizing basically like the worst moral actors to want to achieve those roles, right? So like these roles of power are going to attract like some of the worst people, the people that really want that power. Yep. So that's pretty much that summed up. And I I don't know. I don't know if there's anything else to say if he's kind of alluding in the previous paragraph to the fact that like maybe people should like still shame this behavior. Like if that's something that we need to do, like anything that you're doing, even if you are a member of government, uh, as LPNH is very good at doing, shame Meghan McCain, shame them and make them cry because these are bad people and they are not seen as bad people and they should be basically.
1: I agree with that. Historically, the selection of a prince was through the accent of his noble birth, and his only personal qualification was typically his upbringing as a future prince and preserver of the dynasty and its status and possessions. This did not assure that a prince would not be bad and dangerous, of course. However, it is worth remembering that any prince who failed in his primary duty of preserving the dynasty, who wrecked or ruined the country, caused civil unrest, turmoil and strife, or otherwise endangered the position of the dynasty, face the immediate risk of either being neutralized or assassinated by another member of his family, of his own family. In any case, however, even if the accent of birth and his upbringing could not preclude that a prince might be bad and dangerous, at the same time the accent of a noble birth and a princely education also did not preclude that he might be a harmless dilettante or even a good and moral person. In contrast, the selection of government rulers by means of popular elections makes it practically impossible that any good or harmless person could ever rise to the top. Prime ministers and presidents are selected for their proven efficiency as morally uninhibited demagogues. Thus, democracy virtually assures that only bad and dangerous men will ever rise to the top of government. Indeed, as a result of free political competition and selection, those who rise will become increasingly bad and dangerous individuals. Yet, as temporary and interchangeable caretakers they will only rarely be assassinated. And I added a little note on that and and also to little effect because if you were to, say, supposedly do that thing, I'm not trying to nuke the channel, uh, but, uh, you know, in a democracy that's going to have a far smaller effect and almost no effect, if anything, usually probably a go against whatever your aims are uh, because someone else will just take over and it'll just cause some sort of backlash to your, uh, you know, whatever movement you got going on. But in a a monarchy...
2: That could actually shake up some things, so like, you know. Yeah, yeah. In the democratic, uh, yeah, system, yeah. Like, what is that going to do? Like, just somebody else that's in the same regime is just going to replace that person. My uh, my footer note there was going to be, uh, like, I don't know, John Wilkes Booth is kind of based or something like that. <laughs> that better not get your channel nuked. But uh, no, I do
1: like uh, the biggest thing I liked about that is that previous paragraph. It, 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 this kind of was the perfect little bookend for it because it kind of pointed out – it made the point in the before of how the idea of you know, democracies only incentivizes bad behavior among them. And it took this to do the, the flip side Goes monarchies – like, yeah, it doesn't really necessarily incentivize or de-incentivize one way or the other whether they're decent. If anything, like it kind of is a borderline neutral. Uh, if anything, maybe even positive because, mm-hmm. you know, like they pointed out, there are people within his family who will take over. He'll kind of shame the family. It's just yeah. generally speaking, not in their best uh, best interest to fuck up the country, um, right? Whereas, you know, on the flip side, with a dem- dem- uh, democratic government, uh, it is almost impossible that anyone could have decent, you know, uh, moral or just, uh, you know, just doing the right thing in general. Like any person like that could,
2: you know, rise up. Yeah, I think yeah. The two, I love this whole chapter by the way. There's a lot of like really great points in here. This is probably one of my favorite chapters in the book. But the uh, maybe the best, but the, um, uh, yeah, a couple of points there. Uh, one would be that, uh, he is saying that the, um, monarch is, uh, I keep saying monarchist, but monarch either way, same thing. The prince in this paragraph, uh, is like more incentivized to sort of like not let things like crumble and get out of control because it's way more likely that he's going to be overthrown or something like that if he's doing bad things because he's the only one there and everybody knows hey that's this guy's fault pretty much whereas in, in the democracy all those lines get blurred you don't really uh, necessarily you're not really aware of that as much you're not really putting the blame on the right people as much um and uh oh right the other point there which you were kind of just saying is that like when you have the situation of the monarchy which i think this is one of the, the main reasons why he would prefer a monarchy over a democracy is that in the democracy there is the possibility that you get a benevolent monarch essentially like even if it's unlikely like you might end up with if you want to consider north korea to be a monarchy i don't know if you do i mean it is a dictatorship of some kind yeah you might wind up with something really bad with a single ruler like that but you also might wind up with like I don't know, Liechtenstein might be a better example than that, where you have like a prince that's not that bad, right? And it's kind of maintaining a lot of the, I I don't know what the situation Liechtenstein is now, but I know it's kind of the one that's used because they are a monarchy. They have a prince and, you know, I think he does adhere to more private property than many other uh, rulers do. So you could wind up in a situation like that. And that's why, uh, that's one of the main reasons why I think he finds it uh, preferable. Um, whereas in the democratic system, as he puts it, it's impossible to get that. Like you are just going to be incentivizing the worst people to get in there and rise to the top. And that's always going to be the case.
1: Yep. After more than a century of compulsory democracy, the predictable results are before our very eyes. The tax loads load imposed on property owners and producers makes the economic burden, even of slaves and serfs seem moderate in comparison. Government debt has risen to breathtaking heights. Gold has been replaced by government-manufactured paper as money, and its value has continually dwindled. Every detail of private life, property, trade, and contract is regulated by ever-higher mountains of paper law. In the name of social, public, or national security, our caretakers protect us from global warming, and cooling, and the extinction of animals and plants from husbands and wives, parents and employers, poverty, disease, disaster, ignorance, prejudice, racism, sexism, homophobia, and countless other uh, public enemies and dangers. And with enormous stockpiles of weapons and aggression and of aggression and mass destruction, they quote-unquote defend us, even outside of the U.S., from ever-new Hitlers and all suspected Hitlerite sympathizers. However, the only task a government was ever supposed to assume of protecting a life and property our caretakers do not perform to the contrary the higher the expenditures on social public and national security have been or have risen the more our private property rights have been eroded the more our property has been expropriated confiscated destroyed and depreciated and the more we have been deprived of the very foundation of all protection of personal independence economic strength and private wealth the more paper laws have been produced the more legal certainty uncertainty and moral hazard has been created and lawlessness has displaced law and order. And while we have become ever more helpless, impoverished, threatened, and insecure, our rulers have become
2: increasingly more corrupt, dangerously armed, and arrogant. That was a good one. Right. Yeah, so the government is going to, you know, m- just make up all these threats because, of course, they still want to kind of maintain the perception that they are there to protect your private property, protect you, whatever, and they'll just make all the shit up like COVID. And whatever else, and, you know, as he even puts it here, like, they'll literally just say that, like, Trump is Hitler, and, you know, they'll just, or, you know, his his base are Hitler's, essentially, and they have to protect you from all these threats, and they just make up to continuously try to uh, legitimize themselves in the eyes of the population. Um, that's pretty much Yeah. What was going on there? And then he he did uh, bring up that uh, because you have so many laws now and you don't even know really what laws are even on the books, which we've talked about before, but that will, that will like disincentivize you from doing some things that you would normally do that are not anything that you would consider to be immoral or whatever, because you might think like, wait a minute though, this might be illegal. So I'm not going to do this. So it's actually going to disincentivize you. And that overall is going to make people less productive and stuff because they don't even know, like, you know, if you get what I'm saying there. Yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah, it like disincentivizes like normal behavior, essentially. All right. Um, at this point, the question of the future of liberalism arises. It is appropriate to return to my beginning, to Ludwig von Mises and the idea of a liberal social order. Like Etienne de la Boete, Boétie. <laughs> <laughs> Etienne de la Boétie. By the way, I
1: think – I was thinking about it the other day. I'm pretty sure that La Boete book I want to probably read with uh, Clint. I've read it before. It's a really good book. I forget the name of it. Uh, uh, but it's it's I his forget. most noted work.
2: I get confused with De Juvenile, which is on power. Yeah. I can't remember what the La Boete one is. but It's a good uh, book,
1: though. I feel like that would be a good one for me to do with Clint.
2: So, but – Right. like Etienne de la Boétie and David Hume before him, Mises recognized that the power of every government, whether of princes or caretakers, benevolent men or tyrants, rests ultimately on opinion rather than physical force. The agents of government are always only a small proportion of the total population under their control, whether under princely or democratic rule. Even smaller is the proportion of central government agents. But this implies that a government, and in particular a central government, cannot possibly impose its will on, upon the entire population, unless it finds widespread support and voluntary cooperation within the non-governmental public. As T put it, He who thus domineers over you has indeed nothing more than the power that you confer upon him to destroy you. Where he has acquired enough eyes to spy upon you, if you do not provide them... Oh, where has he acquired enough eyes to spy upon you if you do not provide them yourselves? How can he have so many arms to beat you with if he does not borrow them from you? The feet that trample down your cities, where does he get them if they are not your own? How does he have any power over you except through you? How would he dare assail you if he had no cooperation from you? What would he do to you if you yourself did not connive with the thief who plunders you? If you were not accomplices of the murderer who kills you, if you are not traitors to yourselves, you sow your crops in order that he may ravage them. You install and furnish your homes to give him goods to pillage. You rear your daughters that he may gratify his lust. You bring up your children in order that he may confer upon them the greatest privilege he knows to be led into his battles, to be delivered to butchery, to be made the servants of his greed and the instruments of his vengeance. You yield your bodies into hard labor in order that he may indulge in his delights and wallow in his filthy pleasures. You weaken yourselves in order to make him the stronger and mightier to hold you in check.
1: Loboetti is the shit. I for, I'm going to have to, I believe it's invol. something about involuntary servitude or something. I believe is the name of that book that he does something like that. Um, uh, i've read before it's a great one uh no the one. discourse no the discourse of voluntary servitude yeah this like, one Etienne says yeah
2: politics of obedience the discourse of voluntary servitude in the uh yeah. footnote there Etienne de la bowie yeah i don't know if i would put that in like the top five
1: or top ten like essential reading but it's like almost solid. that is like one, that
2: is an, a great book
1: like so right. i highly suggest people check that right out. and that was
2: that was definitely a long like kind of flowery, a flourishy way to kind of say the same thing over and over again. But basically like you are a party to, uh, you know, your yeah. own uh, being ruled over essentially like you are allowing this to happen. And uh, Hoppe is making that point, you know, in the paragraph that he used that. And basically the government propaganda propagandizes you and has to take control of the corporate press uh, because they, they need you to buy into them buy into their legitimacy and they have to continually do that. And we're seeing, I think they're starting to lose their grip more and more here as, as we have been seeing, which is kind of uh, the white pill, kind of the Michael Malice uh, look at things there. Um, Yeah. So, but, and, you know, as he's pointing out here, the population, the members of the public uh, dramatically outweigh the members of government, even if you say, well, and it is true that in a democracy you do have way more, people participating in government and things like that but we're talking about like a lot of these like people that are in you know smaller levels of government and stuff like that like they're kind of like normal people and they could like see the light let's say like they could be like red pill your local sheriff maybe or you know some like local school teacher or something like that as much as i bash you know school teachers and cops and stuff like that that is true that you could like um you know you know what i'm saying like the people that are like really like true evil that are like the ruling class like if you want to call it the deep state and the people like that like they're outnumbered by the public by quite a bit so if more people were to actually see that uh they might be able to you know reject this and not comply although first what we saw with covid is that that has not been the case however and people have been complying in a massive way which is not good
1: but there's also a lot of people not complying in a massive way as well. So it's a it's sure. a tale of, tale of two worlds. And he kind of goes uh, you know agorism light here in this section that you're going to probably continue to read. Yeah. I do remember I read this a few days ago. I was reading through this again, and yeah, it's a it, it's pretty good. Uh, he he kind of starts, you, and I think we'll see in a you know a page or two, we'll start seeing the beginnings of kind of his what must be done type stuff that he uh
2: he wrote later.
1: But uh, I'll let you keep going.
2: All right. Uh, La Boite's 16th century treatise, it also... Oh,
1: where are you? You're at however, if the power
2: of government... Oh, shit. I missed that bottom paragraph. I was like, wait, that doesn't make sense. However, if the power of every government rests only on opinion and consensual cooperation, then, as Mises' foremost student and our other intellectual master, Murray N. Rothbard, explained in his introduction to La Boite's 16th century treatise it also follows that each government can be brought down by a mere change of opinion and the exercise of sheer willpower quote for if tyranny really rests on mass consent, then the obvious means for its overthrow is simply mass withdrawal of that consent. And that is, uh, I think that's still from, uh, love i T I'm pretty sure that quote, mm-hmm. um, that is, in order to strip government of its powers and repair it to the status of a voluntary membership organization, as before 1861. Yeah, I don't know if that quote was Rothbard or OT I'd have to look at the footnotes yeah, more closely. It is not necessary to take it over, to engage in violent battle against it, or even to lay hands on one's rulers. In fact, to do so would only reaffirm the principle of compulsion and aggressive violence. Underline the current system and inevitably lead to the replacement of one government or tyrant by another. To the contrary, it is only necessary that one decide to withdraw from the compulsory union and reassume one's rights to self-protection. Indeed, it is essential that one proceed in no other way than by peaceful secession and non-cooperation yeah let's
1: let's keep moving i don't think that needs any commentary but let's <laughs> I, I mean if know. you want to go for it
2: i don't know because there are there are definitely people in like the hoppian sphere and like maybe i'm even included in that that are getting some of that i mean i'm not getting like that like this specific thing wrong but there are some that are saying that you know Hoppe is like rejecting the non-aggression principle and i don't believe that he is uh which uh, i mean in that section right there he sounds like a pacifist essentially he's basically saying- well he he's no he's being a pragmatist he's making the yeah. better
1: i don't think he has any uh it's the case i've made i i always use this case there was a guy who got i don't remember the specific details let me look it up but he got pulled over by the cops and they harassed him and he basically didn't do anything wrong at least especially not in our perspective uh it was something stupid and uh i think he had like drugs on him or something he didn't want to get out of the car or something like weed or some mm-hmm. shit yeah. And then they, like, kind of pulled him out of the car, pulled him out, and they kept, like, trying to yank him. They were tasing him, and they were essentially assaulting him over and over again. And yeah. they all of a sudden just got out, pulled the gun out from waistband, blew them both away. Now, in, a, in our – you know, generally speaking, our perception of morality in a libertarian sense, I don't think that was technically morally wrong. I mean, maybe you could say it was disproportional uh, in a self-defense. Yeah. I disagree because uh, essentially these were two individuals that he just <laughs> – he did. He broke. He, he disregarded no one's property rights. He did nothing wrong. He wasn't. Yeah, he's definitely allowed to no
2: defend himself.
1: Yeah, he defended himself. He essentially. They. He was being electrocuted repeatedly, being assaulted physically by them, trying to remove him and you know essentially hurting him. And he came out and blew them both away. Hmm. That is, in my opinion, morally, you know, on the up and up, but pragmatically, very dumb. That guy's going to spend the rest of his life in a jail in a jail cell. It's right. not a very smart choice. And that's, I think that's kind of like uh, – I, I wouldn't uh, characterize this as pacifism. Mm-hmm. It's kind of making the yeah. point that uh, especially in regards to governments and, and especially in a violent overthrow because uh, mm-hmm. that's not what Hoppe uh, you know, pushes for at all. Right. I mean I guess you could make a case that's sort of violent if you're going to the argument of government is violence, but that's murky, weird bullshit, and I don't really like that. If We're not going to make is violence, but make voting case, is violence, yeah.
2: yeah. Right. If but, you want to make a case for yeah, d- defense of some kind there, yeah, so – Papa obviously is arguing for secession. He he would prefer peaceful secession, of course. Uh, I think all of us would. Um, Right. He's saying that it is not a good idea to, yeah, fight against, especially right now the situation. Boogs are
1: dumb. Is what he's saying.
2: Right to like take up arms against this government. That even though he did say that you can outnumber the government, you need those numbers. So like a small like faction of people doing that. Like they're gonna get blown away by you know yeah. the U.S. military essentially if they try to do that because the U.S. military has way more power. And again, I hope this episode does not get nuked. We're saying yeah. to not boog out, all right? Yes, uh, no, so booging
1: is is uh in the long run it's dumb,
2: dumb strategically. It's yeah, big yeah, dumb, yeah. as you would yes. say. Yeah. Uh, so he's saying that too. Although, however, you know, I mean, he is aware of what happened with the uh, Civil War and obviously the government, you know, crushed that secession movement, the Union yeah. that did. But of course they also needed like a lot of people buying into it. I think they they definitely uh, had a forced uh, military conscription in that war as well, right? Because I I don't think you'd be able to get that many people to fight against fellow Americans like that. I want to say
1: both sides did, but I don't remember. Yeah, Yeah, maybe maybe
2: both sides did, yeah. um, Yeah, yeah, um, I think I would say that like, you know, because I sort of take like certain perspectives where I'm like, I'm okay with this like state government, like, making this particular thing illegal if it's, like, fighting back against, like, something that the federal government is doing or something like that. Like, I've taken some stances like that where I'm like, well, could you say that this is, like, sort of, like, you know, this is preferable in a way? Like, obviously, I'm not saying it's libertarian, but I'm saying that it is, like, preferable. You know what I mean? All right. Like, yeah. for instance, some of the stuff that, like, DeSantis might be doing in Florida.
1: Yeah. I, I don't even know if Hoppe would necessarily disagree with you. I, I don't think that's really what he's talking about here. Right. But l- yeah, let's keep it moving. We're
2: already almost an hour. We only really got yeah. a little bit left. So if this advice seems at first naive, what difference does it make if you or I decide to secede from the union? Its status as a genuine strategy of social revolution becomes apparent once the full implications of an act of personal secession are spelled out. The decision to secede involves that one regard the central government as illegitimate and that one accordingly treat it and its agents as an outlaw agency and foreign occupying forces. That is if compelled by them, one complies out of prudence and for no other reason than self-preservation. I'm but telling one, you
1: hop is a good ass agress. I'm telling yeah, you, if yeah. shit.
2: but one does nothing to support or facilitate their operations. One tries to keep, as much of one's property and surrender as little tax money as possible one considers all federal law legislation and regulation null and void and ignores it whenever possible one does not work or volunteer for the central government whether it's executive legislative or judicial branch and one does not associate with anyone who does and in particular not with those high up in the hierarchy of caretakers um one does not participate in Central government politics and contributes nothing to the operation of the federal political machinery. One does not contribute to any national political party or political campaign. Oh, shit. Even the LP. (laughs) (laughs) Nor to any organization, agency, foundation, institute, or think tank. Oh, shit. Uh, cooperating with or funded by any branch of the federal Leviathan, or anyone living or working in or near Washington D.C. Yeah, fuck he just laid Kato. out the
1: best paragraph of explaining what agorism is right there.
2: Oh, All right, let's fuck the Cato Institute. Yeah. Although
1: in. I, I would say he may make a because it sounds like he was saying like if they were funded like so I guess and I know I know he's not a big fan of the LP. He's he for the <laughs> Republican Party, so I don't know if he's going to caveat. I don't remember him making a caveat, but we'll see.
2: He definitely um, is
1: not okay. He's not like yeah. against political involvement, but it's like only for specific aims and at a very localized level. Right, he's saying that right. of
2: course like it's going to make sense for people to do that uh you know, in some cases out of an act of self-preservation like maybe you know, for instance like paying a certain amount of taxes because if you don't you're going to get yeah. shot pretty much yeah. so like
1: just cost benefit. Like like right. it really is ju- just like this is a That paragraph really was one of the best summations of what agorism basically is because it's, yeah, it's just a a cost benefit uh, type, uh, you know, evaluation for everything. And so instead of being like, that's illegal, I can't do it. You go, okay, well, that's illegal. What is the fine? What is the likelihood I'm going to get caught? What do I stand to benefit from this? If the cost outweighs the, the,
2: the benefit, then you don't do it. Yeah. And it's really hard to avoid in a lot of cases like, oh, like, you know, I I need to make money to support myself or I need to support my family or whatever. And that might mean that I have to work for, you know, some company that, you know, is in some way being supported by the government. Like so many of them are now it's difficult to not get entrapped in that in some way. Like, you know, I, I try to avoid it. You know, I've worked for like small companies, but it's, you know, it's hard to avoid. Like when you work for a company like that, you can't even avoid uh, having to pay taxes because they just take, Payroll just takes it out of your paycheck and there's nothing you can even do about it.
1: Yeah, that's why people look at like agorism or something or, or just what Hop is laying out here as some sort of a binary or absolute or silly because, I mean, now the idea is that you just understand there are preferable modes, preferable things. If you are if you could take a job that makes, I don't know, $500, $1,000 less a month, but you know it's not as connected to, you know, or you're able to not file taxes or what have you, for one, it's like also beneficial from a libertarian sense, but uh, generally speaking, it'll probably be beneficial from a personal uh, sense too. Cause if it's like, if you're able to conceal more of that money, it gives you, you're less tied up in the government. You may not get forced to get a pokey poke or or whatever, whatever thing, there are going to be benefits. So
2: it's just a, you know, uh, weighing the benefits from a different frame of mind, from our frame of mind. Right. And of course, as we know, I uh, put my job on the line to avoid getting the, uh, the jab, which I think I'm particularly at risk uh to it. So
1: yeah. The jab, you know, yeah self yeah.
2: self-preservation again. I had to do it wasn't, you know, just principle in that case, it was also self-preservational. I think it made sense in both ways. Like there's like a tipping point where you've got to just like fight this shit, right? Like I'm like, yeah. whatever, like I'll I'll lose my job over this. Yeah. You know.
1: Instead, with as much as one's property as can be possibly secured from the hands of government, one begins to provide for one's own protection adopts a new systematic two-fold investment strategy. On the one hand, just as the existence of private crime requires an appropriate defense, such as locks, guns, gates, guards, guards, and insurance, so the existence of government requires specific defense measures that one invests in such forms and at such locations, which withdraw, remove, hide, or conceals one wealth as far as possible from the eyes and arms of government. But defensive measures are not sufficient. In order to gain full protection of one's property from the reaches of government, it is necessary not to remain isolated in one's decision to secede. Not everyone must follow one's example, of course. Indeed, it is not even necessary the majority of the entire population do so. It is necessary, however, that at least a majority of the population at many separate localities do. And to reach this critical level of mass withdrawal, it is essential to complement one's defensive measures with an offensive strategy to invest in an ideological campaign of delegitimizing the idea and
2: institution of democratic government among the public. Yeah, so I would say there, like, he's almost, he's a little bit, like, arguing against agorism, I would say there, because as you probably know, like, my uh, criticism of agorism uh, tends to be that I don't think that it's a scalable solution, where he's like. I
1: would, no, he's not here. He's just saying the more the people do, the better. That's all he's saying. Which is he, what I've he, always he is, said he is before. talking
2: about scale. And I think what he's, what he's getting at here is that you need enough people to be doing this with you, that you're going to be able to have enough people that are producing things and enough like cooperation between people that you'll still have like free market capitalism going on here. Basically. I mean, he's
1: not saying that at all. He really is just saying you need more people and the more people, the better it's always going to be better. The more people you can get engaged with a true free market, the better. I mean, it's not a binary. If you're looking at it as a binary, you're wrong. Obviously, though, if you can get a mass amount of people, especially you know, especially if it's at a localized level, that's like the a large. Say you were able to get, I don't know, New Hampshire, if they got to a uh, a boiling point to where they had enough people, are just like fuck this, I'm out. Then they, they have more power. The more people who do it, the better. But it's obviously preferable. But like we said before, it's not a zero or a one. The idea is you push Correct. it to the limit. And if it's at a point to where it's going to be at your detriment to a point to where whatever profits you're going to gain or whatever personal uh, subjective value you feel you gain from it is uh, you know, exceeded by the uh, the subjective costs, then yeah, you, you don't pursue that action. The idea is you're just you're kind of trying to push it to the edge where you can, when you can. And the more people that do it as well, the better. And that's that's mm-hmm. all he's saying here.
2: No, yeah, no, I agree with you that it's not a binary. I, I do still think he's alluding to like what I'm saying, although maybe I'm just inferring it. But I do think that is also a correct point. But he is saying, yeah, you need numbers. But I think it's for a bunch of reasons because it's for mm-hmm. the ability to defend yourselves. Um, You know, the fact that you need that many people like on your side, essentially. But I do think it's also for uh, what I said, like, you know, cooperating in like a market, basically. So.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I wouldn't disagree that you should cooperate in the market. That's yeah. what agorism is. Uh, the yeah. mass of people, as Loboeti and Mises recognize, always and everywhere consists of brutes, dullards, and fools, easily diluted and sunk into habitual su- uh, submission. Thus, today, inundated from early childhood with government propaganda in public schools and educational institutions by legions. Of publicly certified individuals, most people mindlessly accept and repeat nonsense such as that democracy is self-rule and government is of, by, and for the people. Even if they can see through this deception, most still unquestioningly accept democratic government on account of the fact that it provides them with a multitude of goods and benefits. Such fools, observed Laboetti, do not realize that they are merely recovering a portion of their own property and that ruler could not have given them what they were receiving without first uh, taking it from them. Thus, every social revolution will necessarily have to begin with just a few uncommon men, the natural elite. This is how Lavoetti describes this elite and its role. There are always a few, better endowed than others, who feel the weight of the yoke and cannot restrain themselves from attempting to shake it off. These are the men who never became tamed under subjection and who always, like Ulysses on land, and see, constantly seeking the smoke of his chimney, cannot prevent themselves from peering about for their natural privileges and from remembering their ancestors and their former ways. These are, in fact, the men who, possessed of clear minds and far sighted spirit, are not satisfied, like the brutish men, to see what only is at their feet, but rather look about them behind and before, and even recall the things of the past in order to judge those of the future and compare both with their present condition. Those are these are the ones who, having good minds of their own, have fully or eh, have further trained them by study and learning. Even if liberty had entirely perished from the earth, such men would invent it. For them, slavery has no satisfaction, no matter how well disguised. Just as there can be no revolution without a liberal, libertarian elite, however, so can there be no revolution without some form of mass participation. That is the elite cannot reach its goal of restoring private property rights and law and order unless it succeeds in in communicating its ideas to the public openly if possible and secretly if necessary and awakening the masses from the subservient slumber by arousing, at least temporarily, their natural instinct of wanting to be free. As Mises put it, the flowering of human society depends on two factors, the intellectual power of outstanding men to conceive social or sound social and economic theories, and the ability of these or other men to make these ideolo- ideologies compatible to the majority. So yeah. this right here is, I think, what he's building to. I think you were missing the point earlier. He was building to his intellectual point that this is kind of sure, like yeah. the intellectual elites uh, or the just elites in general, where these were kind of the missing portion that he was kind of alluding to, what he was building up to mm-hmm. with
2: that paragraph. Yeah, yeah, which you I
1: agree.
2: Yeah, like, I agree. Yeah, you need yeah. like you need that many people to yeah, like be red-pilled essentially. Like I like how like this book, yeah, like you can just apply it to what's going on right now and it all just, Mm -hmm. yeah, fits perfectly. But yeah, like he's essentially saying like you need a certain critical mass of people to be like red-pilled in order to uh, be able to like do this. And in this case, what he's saying is essentially secede from the federal government at least. And yeah, just totally reject that uh, basically. So yeah, I think that it's, I think that it's all three of those things uh, yep. combined. Like, you, First, you need all those people to buy into that, understand that, believe that. So then you have enough of those people that are going to do that. And then it becomes, you know, and you, the reason that you need that are like the things, like I said, like you need that amount of people to be able to, you know, defend their property because, well, the government might come after you if you're trying to do that. So You need, you know, the numbers to defend yourselves and you need, um, you know, you need that, like enough people that are producers and stuff and, you know, market cooperation and stuff like that as well. So I think all of those things apply and get rolled uh, into one there. And I don't know if there's anything else to add there. He's basically saying that like the masses are blue pill. The education system is continuing to keep them that way and stuff like that. And you need like this small portion of, you know, again, his like natural elites, but in this case, these are like the elites that are sort of like the, real libertarians, like the elites that understand like what is actually going on and are willing to do something about it basically. Yep. Hence the decisions by members of the elite to cede from and not cooperate
1: with government must always include the resolve resolve of engaging in or contributing to a continuous ideological struggle. For if the power of government rests on the widespread acceptance of false indeed Absurd and foolish ideas, then only the genuine protection is the systematic attack of these ideas and the propagation and proliferation of true ones. Yet just as one must be always cautious and careful regarding one's material investments, it is equally important that one be eternally vigilant and selective in one's ideological investments. In particular, and this endeavor, it is not sufficient to merely criticize or support critics and criticisms of specific government policies or personalities, for even if correct and popular, such criticism does not penetrate to the root of the problem. In the terminology of the new left, it is, it is imminent to the system and thus harmless from the point of government. Accordingly, any support given to such efforts, however well intended, is at best wasteful and at worst further increases the power of government. Rather, while criticisms and critics of government may start with specific policies or personalities, or even if they must do so to attract mass attention, everything and everyone worth supporting will have to go further. Every critic and criticism deserving of support must proceed to explain each and every particular government failing as symptomatic of an underlying flaw in the very idea of government itself and of democratic government in particular. In other words, no critic or criticism is worthy of anyone's support unless it exposes as intellectual fraud the two pillars on which all government power rests. The belief, the protection of private property, unique among all goods, necessitates a compulsory monopoly. And that private property and protection are best secured if entry into this monopoly of law and order is free and its directors are elected democratically. It's a lot. That is a lot.
2: Um, yeah. So, I mean, I would say that, like, obviously, yes, I am a fan of, you know, criticizing these people. As you know, I mentioned the LPNH, Megan McCain thing. I am definitely a fan of that because I do think that it attracts attention. And I think yeah. that is why you would do something like that. You want to bring more eyes to you and then they're going to see, hey, like, what else do these people have to say? So I think it's, Yeah. You know, I do think that that's uh, pretty valuable in doing something yeah. like that. Um, I might like, maybe disagree with hop a little bit here about like like i'm not really sure that like uh, other than like people that are really like uh kind of like wired to like understand this like i'm not or you know to like really like want to like hear these arguments that are you know the real like i don't know like theoretical arguments and stuff like that i don't know if that's really going to like reach enough people that way i think his point
1: though is that like that is what you need to get to because Mm -hmm. if you're only at a point of, well, fucking look at, look at fucking Joe Biden. Look at what he did. And that's all you're focusing on as opposed to like, you know, well, this person, this, if you're like, well, I don't know. I think we should stick at a 4% tax rate as opposed to a six. Like if you're in that type of, uh, you know, that's what kind of what he's getting at. And like, for example, the the McCain thing, like teasing her, I think if like, if it had only stopped it there. Uh, you know, by this, you know, what Hoppe just said here, he would probably uh, he'd be like, this is dumb. But if then yeah. you take that moment to then reframe it and be like, this, 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 look at the fucking follies of government. Then you get your point. And he, he even said yeah. that in there. I don't remember specifically what he yeah, said. Yeah, look I mean,
2: at the wars. Yeah, yeah exactly. He yeah, said yeah. like,
1: um, if you can use it as to like kind of draw attention initially is essentially so something along those lines. Right. um
2: yeah. yeah. I don't know if I'm yeah explaining what I'm, trying to get at, but you, you might understand what I was like, maybe like w- w- what he's probably saying here, like we need people to be less retarded. And I don't know how to make that happen really, because right now I think like the way that you're going to, the way that you're going to reach people right now is, uh, is definitely to like focus on like the things that they care about the most, which is going to be the stuff that like hits them at home the closest. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say probably, I mean, if I had to guess, maybe I'm reading between the lines of a little bit here. Um, Hoppe wouldn't necessarily probably disagree with you. There are a lot of stupid people that you aren't going to build yeah. move. But then the day, this is why he brought up his point of elites. So the idea is that hopefully maybe you can af- influence the thinking of elites. And it doesn't mean like elite in the like some billionaire because people are like, oh, I was a bully. It could just mean someone who excels in their yeah. field or just is essentially smart. Essentially, you're looking for the remnant, the Ron Paul remnant. There are going to be mm. people out there who see your arguments and it clicks with them. And those yeah. are the people that will then take those ideas and move forward. And, you know, the idiots out there are essentially the center. And the center just kind of follows – they're just kind of this amorphous blob that really doesn't really have any strong beliefs and just kind of follows, uh, you know, what people say. So if you have enough, you know, somewhat elites out there, you know, at differing levels and of differing abilities making these cases, the normal people are just kind of kind of nod along and kind of go along with it. So, yeah.
2: Right. I I think basically what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I just don't know – yeah, like – How you get to a point where, like, someone is willing to accept, like, the – or, yeah, understand, maybe, like, the libertarian argument. Like, you know, I mean, it happened to us, but, like, is there, like, a certain reason why, like, you know, people like – it happens to people like us? Like, I don't know. I don't mean But I guess you're you're saying, you know, we need to reach, like, everybody who is like us and who will – yeah, hear that and understand it. I don't know. Yeah, no. All right. Um,
1: in fact, there must never even be even the slightest wavering in one's commitment to uncompromising ideological radicalism. Not only would anything less be counterproductive, but more importantly, only radical, indeed radically simple, ideas can possibly stir the emotions of the dull and indolent masses. And nothing is more effective in persuading the masses to cease cooperating with government than the constant and relentless exposure, desanctification, and ridicule of government and its representatives as moral and economic frauds and imposters. As yeah. emperors without clothes, subject to contempt and the butt of all jokes. So he just yeah. kind of
2: answered your own point. Right yeah, yeah. He, yeah. I haven't read this in a while, but yeah, he, he pretty much answered That's I why I, I love
1: yeah. shit like what the LPNH did with the Meghan McCain thing. Because that yeah. is that right there. It's bold. It's in your face. And people don't really pay attention. Yeah, they may have one strong thing, but it's going to shake them. It's going to shake like whoa, why, why the fuck would you ever do whoa? It's like it kind of stirs things up, and that's because he kind of points the—that's the only thing can to stir the emotions: of the dull and indolent masses. And they're going to feel some sort of way about it, and that is how you stir shit up. Uh, yeah. and it, you know he kind of points out that the relentless exposure, desanctification, the ridicule of government. And its representatives. So, like, mm-hmm. uh, so I like, yeah, I mean, technically, I guess you could say Megan McCain's not a representative, but I don't, I don't, I don't buy that uh, hypothesis. She oh, I, I think it. you need
2: to, yeah, like, I would say, I would go as far as to say that, yeah, you should be uh, shaming and making the butt of jokes and mocking uh, the people that buy into it. So, yep. yeah. If
1: and only if the members of the natural liberty liberal libertarian elite have fully grasped this lesson and begin to act accordingly, will liberalism have a future? Only then will they have done what leboetti advised us all to do. Resolve to serve no more, and you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has uh, pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight, and break into pieces.
2: I was like, Podesta, what? <laughs> yeah. well, all right, man.
1: Yeah. Uh, I I'm not really anything to comment on that. If you want to go and drop your plugs, you and get the fuck out of here.
2: No, yeah. I mean, that's just... Yeah, his uh, La Bowie T uh, quotes that he's using are kind of reiterating uh, what he's already said in a more uh, flowery way, like I said. So, yeah. I'm Toad, Tower Gang Toad on Twitter. Uh, my appeals for Anarcha Toad keep getting rejected. Looks like I might not get it back. Fuck you, Elon. Uh, Tower Gang podcast. Uh, that's every Wednesday night. Uh, we are... We do offensive comedy. That's me, Jose, Cole, aka Fat Dave, Clint from Liberty, Lockdown, Top lobster, and sometimes Reed Coverdale. And as Jose was saying, uh, some of us are going to be on Timcast now, uh, in January. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, this Wednesday, uh, we have Chris from Brooklyn, I believe, coming on. So we got a guest on this one. It's gonna be a fun episode. Funny episode, 9-11 p.m. every Wednesday. Uh, we do stream to YouTube. Uh and we're on uh, Odyssey. Uh, basically, all the major platforms are kind of still still on there. But live streaming, YouTube, Odyssey. And we are on Patreon. So Tower Gang, Tower Gang pod everywhere, basically. All right. Uh, this is the No
1: Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube. All the major odd podcatchers. Odyssey as well. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at Jose 2020 unless I get my old accounts back. Uh, if you want to support me, patreon.com is no Jose 2020. I appreciate all my patrons out there. And everyone supporting this content, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. If you don't want to give me money, that's that simple thing you can do. Just share it around. I appreciate it. And with that, we are out. We'll be back again soon. Boop, 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 boop. Peace.